just well ahead of their time on lots of levels. Uh, they were ahead of their time in terms of non-violent resistance to the oppressive regime of the New Zealand government at the time. But they're also ahead of their time in the way that they stayed orthodox to the Christian faith and yet didn't, have, didn't turn it into a bunch of Pākehā stuff. So they could outwork Māori culture into this outworking of the teachings of Jesus. Um, there's this academic, again, this isn't like just a preacher who likes this idea. This is, this is like a boring academic journal from Auckland University. Uh, so this talks about Tefiti. He studied the Bible and came to regard it as the infallible word of God. He said, if only we believe the Bible, we are right, he said. He was deeply impressed by Christ's life and words, and he came to revere the Sabbath, saying, does not the Bible say that God made everything, sun, moon, and stars, and rested on the seventh day? Ahead of his time, we need to bang on about the Sabbath a little bit more in our stressed out crazy culture, but that's another sermon which you're bound to get. Um, his Christian conviction remained with him all of his life. Um, Tefiti was probably introduced to the Bible by a slave from Napuhi, uh, Minirapa Rangahau Tauki, I think his name is, um, who was very influenced by the Methodist missionaries. And as often happened in our history, uh, slaves often carried Bibles with them. Slaves that had, uh, had um, become Christians would carry these Bibles. So tribes would uh, like just get introduced to Jesus via the Bible with no missionary influence, which is pretty good. In fact, our best moments in the history sometimes are when the Bible just turns up in a tribe thanks to a slave, and then Jesus starts doing something as they start studying these words. It's when the Pākehā you know, colonising missionaries said you've got to you know, dress like this and, and do all this other stuff that things got a little wonky. But anyway, that's another sermon for another day, which you're bound to get. Um, but so let's come back to Parihaka. So you've got Tafiti and you've got Tohu, who are actually, for many Māori, uh, were seen uh, as the fulfilment of this prophecy that two birds were going to emerge uh, next to a sacred mountain and lead their people into a place of peace and prosperity. So, like, as people are hearing the words of Tafiti, especially who was a great orator, it was like, ooh, and here they are under Mount Taranaki. And so they, they start this uh, pa, this uh, gathering of, of people. Uh, many Māori would come because they were just so tired and impoverished of the, because of all the New Zealand land wars going on. Just really heavy scene at the time. And what had happened is the New Zealand, some of you guys will know this stuff, but it's just worth repeating. New Zealand Parliament had introduced uh, the New Zealand Settlement Act in 1863, which meant they could confiscate land to punish iwi that were deemed to have rebelled against Her Majesty's authority. And they milked that bad boy for all it's worth. Like, man, millions and millions of acres. I think 1.2 million in, in Taranaki alone was just confiscated by the Crown from iwi. And... Um, they also, this is the uh, Thomas Gore Brown, so Gore's named after him. Good choice, as far as I'm concerned, if you look at some of his history, like, good on you, deserve that town. Um, uh, <laughs> real nasty piece of work. Um, real ho uh, Suppression of Rebellion Act, that was another act that got introduced where it says if um, uh, any Māori resisting the Crown could be arrested and detained without trial indefinitely. I mean, it's just, this is our history. Again, many of us are oblivious to this. This is hardcore. So wrong. There's just no way you can dress this up. It's just pure greed and betrayal from, from, the, from the treaty. Um, and so Haki got built on confiscated but unoccupied land because what happened is they would confiscate the land and they would give it to settlers or soldiers. But many of the settlers or soldiers just didn't even live there. 
So it's just this unoccupied land. So what uh, Tefiji did is, because he's like, this is wrong. And again, when Jesus is saying, love your enemies and turn the other cheek, he's not saying just get walked over. So they're like, so they build this part on confiscated but unoccupied land. No one's there. And it's their land anyway, right? So they build this part and all these people start coming along. And the way that they um, would resist uh, what was going on is, is Tefiji was massive on the nonviolence thing. He's like, he's, he's, a, he's a Gandhi. He's like, just don't do it via violence. It's just not the way. We do it a nonviolent way. And so they'll go, he would send this, uh, the boys out and they would uh, grab the surveying pegs that said, oh, this land's for you and this land's for you. And we'll take those pegs. So you've got no idea <laughs> what's going on. And then they'll send plowers out just to plow the land. And it was just their non, and they just got arrested time and time again. No trial, sent down south to prisons. And these beautiful photos you can have a look online of, um, of people on, uh, of women on the pa at Padihaka welcoming back their boys as they come back from prison. I mean, it's just so full on. Um, so that's their uh, Padihaka pa. And, um, and this is uh, an illustration of these guys resisting. So then uh, you've got uh, John Bryce, who's the um, native minister. And he's not native, he's Pākehā is, but he's the native minister, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and so then he's like, he just has enough. He's like, this has to stop. Uh, this, all this uh, surveying and all this ploughing of the land. And so he sends 1,600 troops uh, to Parihaka. And on the 5th of November, Guy Fawkes Day, uh, for us, 1,600 troops marched on Parihaka. Um, thousands of Māori sat on the pa and quietly just sat there. And singing children went out and uh, greeted the, uh, the force. And uh, the, the, they used to call them the singing cicadas, the tatariki, tatarakihi, these singing little cicadas, these little uh, children would go out. And this is the way that they, the enemy turns up and so the children go out and sing to them and greet them. And then the women go out and give them food. So the soldiers are all pumped for battle. Like they are bloodthirsty and they are expecting a fight. Instead, they get loved. It's just full on. And so then uh, is like, no fighting. That's just, like you could go to the park, you could go to Parihaka, you didn't have to be a Christian. But his two things were, you have to agree that we're not going to be violent. And secondly, there cannot be a class system. You can't have an angatira over here and all the slaves over here and all the rest of it. You've got, we're all one, okay? So that's, how, that's the rules of the Parihaka. I mean, again, just revolutionary, just beautiful Christian ethics in action. So the troops turn up and they, um, they, just, they can just do what they just take all the boys, you know? Um, women, women were raped. Um, they grabbed a whole lot of the women and children and the men they didn't arrest and just took them back to their tribal lands, dropped them off with no food, nothing. Um, it's just a horrific, um, a horrific um, time in our history. It's just a really heavy thing that went down, but it's so inspiring as a follower of Jesus because here's some people that took seriously the Sermon on the Mount and outworked it. And on the surface, it looks like the greedy and the powerful and, and, and all that, they won again. But I love this. This is a quote from um, Dr. Iri Hapiti uh, Rihumuchu, who was a, um, a, a human rights commissioner campaigner for Māori women's health. She says, history says that defeaty was defeated, but the moral, this is not from a Christian, by the way, the moral victory was with he who turned the other cheek. It's like, that's, so here's what happens. 
When Te Whiti and Tohu and the courageous Māori of, te, of Pariha could choose not to follow the way of violence, what happens is they expose the violence for what it really is. There were more violent uh, incidences in New Zealand history, but we don't remember them because it's just violence being returned by more violence. What makes this story so utterly stunning is that here we have someone saying, I'm, not, I'm going to turn the other cheek and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to extend forgiveness. And it was only in 2017 that the Crown apologised for what happened on Parihaka but they, they're filled with mercy. And, and that exposes the systemic powers in a way that just retaliatory violence simply will never. It exposes it for what it is. And ultimately, now we have to live with that story because it has exposed something of the rot in New Zealand at that particular time in our country that we're still healing from. But Jesus' way does something that retaliatory violence simply will never do. It's this radical way. Kennedy Warren uh, wrote for the New Zealand National Geographic magazine, it is inconceivable that an Indian child growing up today would not know about Gandhi, just as it is impossible to imagine a child in the United States not knowing about Martin Luther King Jr. or a South African child, Nelson Mandela. Yet generations of New Zealand children have grown up in ignorance of a man whose message and practice of peace and non-violent protest precede theirs by decades. We should be proud. I'm not Māori, but I'm proud of Tafiti as a brother in Christ. I'm like, man, bro, you smashed it. I'm looking forward to meeting Tafiti one day in the age to come because it's like, what a hero, what a legend, what an incredible inspiration for outworking uh, this way of Jesus. It's a story worth repeating again and again. And there's a little movement that's begun that's saying, how about we rename November the 5th instead of Guy Fawkes Day, we make it Party Haka Day to remember that moment in New Zealand's history and to celebrate that instead of something that has no connection to our land. Anyway, it's an amazing, amazing story. It's, but it's deeply challenging because the way of forgiveness is deeply challenging. Um, and the, the forgiveness question raises... Other questions, like, are there limits? Like, to Fiti and Tohu, like, that's on, the, that's on a limit for most of us, to just watch that happen. Are there limits to forgiveness? Is it forgiveness always the right thing to do? Are there times when to forgive would not be the right thing to do? We have to wrestle with these big questions in light of what Jesus says. Earlier this year, Brian Zand, uh, who's this American um, preacher who's very brave, uh, and his church is, is very bold in terms of not just sailing out to all the patriotism, nationalism, and all the rest of it. He, uh, he shared a sermon that deeply impacted me around forgiveness. And he entitled that uh, sermon, uh, The Sunflower, uh, based from this book um, by Simon Wiesenthal, who wrote this book. And uh, in this book, Simon Wiesenthal tells his story um, Simon Wiesenthal was, and this whole story raises interesting questions about forgiveness. Simon Wiesenthal was an Austrian Jew born in 1908. During the horror of the Holocaust, he found himself a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. And because he was fit and strong and healthy, he was spared from immediate execution because he was useful for labour. At one point, Simon was working uh, near a hospital, uh, a German field hospital, and uh, he noticed that on the graves of the Nazis, each German soldier had had a sunflower planted above their grave. And Simon Wiesenthal writes, I envied the dead soldiers. Each had a sunflower to connect them with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. 
For me, there would be no sunflower. I'd be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring a light into my darkness and no butterflies would dance upon my dreadful tomb. And so he's working at, uh, near this hospital and one day a nurse comes to him and says, are you a Jew? Well, you're a Jew because he's a Jew. He's pretty obvious. Um, he said, I want you to come with me. And he took Simon Wiesenthal from, away from the work detail into this hospital room where a solitary German soldier lay in the bed gravely wounded. And the German soldier's name was Karl Seidel, and he was 21 years old. He's from Stuttgart, Germany, and he'd grown up in a Christian home. His parents had not been supporters of the Nazis. In fact, they got into a whole lot of trouble because of their outspoken uh, protest against... Um, what are you doing? Go away. Uh, outspoken protest... <laughs> it's a bad, bad look, hey? <laughs> uh, so they, they, anyway, so the, the only son, Karl, at the age of 16, had joined the Hitler roof, Hitler roof, Hitler youth. Uh, and they were gutted about this, but it's like this 16-year-old kid that's just like, nah, because it was the cool thing to do at the time. And so he uh, goes to the Hitler youth, and uh, totally against his wishes, and at 18, he joined the notorious SS, which would eventually be tasked with carrying out Hitler's final solution. And Karl Seidel had been mortally wounded in a battle. A shell had exploded near him and it had really destroyed a lot of his face. And he'd been sick for a number of months, but he knows that he's dying. And he would actually die within 24 hours of Simon sitting down with him. And so his one last request is that he would, um, he would talk to a Jew and confess his crimes. And so this nurse happened to grab this guy, Simon Wiesenthal, and brought him to the bedside of this dying soldier. And Carl's uh, face was completely covered in bandages. He had just little slits for his eyes and his mouth and his ears. And uh, the nurse informed Carl that she had brought him a Jew. And he wanted to confess and ask for forgiveness. So he begins to tell his story to Simon Wiesenthal. And at one point, Carl just starts holding the hand of this dying Nazi soldier. Um, as Carl tells him horrific stories about what he'd done, and particularly he tells the story about how the SS troops had gone into Ukraine, and at a certain village they rounded up all the Jews in the village, about 300 of them with whips, and they drove them into a three-story house, and after driving them into the house, they set the house on fire. And uh, this is the story that Carl's telling Simon Wiesenthal, and he says he heard the screams and saw the flames eating through floor by floor, And he said, we had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape that blazing hell. And behind the window of the second story, he saw this man with the small child in his arms and his clothes were on fire. And by his his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. And with his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes. Then he jumped into the street. And seconds later, the mother followed them. And Carl says, we shot them. Oh God, we shot them. So I'll speed the rest of the gruesomeness of it, but he goes on to tell that he'd shot many people. But he was particularly appalled by that moment where he shot the six-year-old boy. And this confession went on for hours and hours and hours. And Simon Wiesenthal brushed away flies and gave him a drink. And uh, at the end of the time together, Carl got to the point of the whole minute. He says, I'm here with my guilt in the last hours of my life, and you are here with me. And I do not know you, only that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know what I've told you is terrible, and in the long nights while I have been waiting for death time and time again, I have longed to talk to a Jew and beg forgiveness. Only I didn't know if there are any Jews left. I know what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. And Simon Wiesenthal stood up and left the room and didn't say a single word to Carl. And that night, Carl Seidel died. Miraculously, Simon survived the Holocaust, though 89 members of his family did not. 
And after the war, he went to Stuttgart to visit the mother of Carl Seidel to work out whether the story of his youth in particular was true, and he found out that it was true. And at one point during their conversation, the soldier's mother said, Carl was such a good boy. He was always a good boy. We didn't want him to join the youth, but we couldn't stop him. But he was a good boy. And I know I've heard horrible stories about what SS soldiers did, but I know that my son could never have done anything like that. And again, Simon Wiesenthal remained silent, this time out of kindness, so as to not take away from this grieving mother the idea that her son was a good boy. So Simon Wiesenthal then writes the story of his life in this book called The Sunflower. And uh, in the first edition, it just tells that story. But about 10 years later, he writes a second edition. And this time, he adds a second part to the book. And in this part of the book, it's called The Symposium. And what he did is that he asked, um, he asked uh, the question in this book, uh, did I do the right thing? Ought I have forgi- should I have forgiven him? Was my silence at the bedside of a dying Nazi right or wrong? And he speaks directly to the audience. You have just read the sad and tragic episode of my life, can mentally change places with me and ask yourself the question, what what would I have done? And so he writes this book, they have the symposium, they have 53 uh, different responses to that question. And uh, they have Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and pastors and rabbis and professors and priests and all sorts of different people. And so of the 53 responses, nine are non-committal, basically saying, I don't know what I would have done. And uh, leaving 44 who more or less gave some kind of direct answer. Of the 44, 28, that is 63%, about two-thirds said no. Forgiveness is just not possible there. It's too much to ask. It shouldn't be asked. It's not possible. That means 16 or 36, about a third said yes, there is a way of forgiveness. Of the 16 that said yes, uh, three were Buddhists and the other 13 were Christians. What's most significant is that no Christian said forgiveness is impossible. I think there's something about the radical nature of the Christian faith that has forgiveness at its centre where no Christian is really comfortable saying that forgiveness is not possible even in a situation like this. It's just the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of forgiveness. We are the community, the forgiven community of forgiven sinners. And so he passed away in 2005, Simon Wiesenthal, and um, Brian Zahn wasn't... um, he wasn't one of the people asked to write at the end of this book, but uh, he couldn't help himself. <laughs> so he decided to put pen to paper and he wrote his reply to the question posed by Simon Wiesenthal. And he wrote this. Dear Mr. Wiesenthal, let me first say I will not presume to sit in judgment of your actions. You showed kindness to a dying Nazi soldier as you held his hands and brushed away flyers and gave him water to drink. You show great kindness to his mother and not destroying the memory of her son. Non-Jews and especially Christians should not give advice about the Holocaust experience in its ears for another 2,000 years and then we will have nothing to say. Nevertheless, since you've asked, let me try to reply. I cannot say what I would have done. I can only say what I hope I would have done. As a Christian, I would hope that I would reply something in this manner to my dying enemy. I cannot offer you forgiveness on behalf of those who have suffered monstrous crimes at your hands and the hands of those whom you willingly aligned yourself. I have no right to speak on their behalf. But what I can tell you is that forgiveness is possible. 
There is a way for you to be reconciled with God whose image you have defiled. There is a way for you to be restored to the human race from which you have fallen. There is a way because the one who never committed a crime cried from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe that your sin does not have to be a dead end. There is a way forward into reconciliation. The forgiveness of which I speak, though, is not cheap. It's not cheap because it was not cheap for Jesus to suffer the violence of the cross and offer no retaliation but love and forgiveness. It is not cheap forgiveness because it requires of you deep repentance, including a commitment to restorative justice for those you have wronged. There is no cheap forgiveness for your sins, but there is a costly forgiveness. If you, in truth, turn away from your sins and sorrow and look to Christ in faith, there is forgiveness. A costly forgiveness that can reconcile you to God and restore you to the human race. I cannot forgive you on behalf of others, but on my own behalf and in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Welcome to the forgiven community of forgiven sinners and may the peace of Jesus Christ be with you. This is what I hope I would have said, but for all I know, I might have treated a dying enemy with far less kindness than you did in deep admiration of your dignity. Christian forgiveness is not something that is easy to do. I mean, there's some, like, you hear this statement, forgive and forget. And, uh, and there's some things that we should just, trivial things, just forget about it. You know, forgive and forget, right? You know, sorry, Jen, left the towel on the floor again in the bathroom. It's like, you know, hopefully she can forgive and forget. If that's wounded her and 10 years later it's still this thing, then, you know, we, we, we've got some issues. <laughs> Big issues. But you know, there's some stuff, absolutely. But there's some things that should never be forgotten. Party haka should never be forgotten. But forgiveness is possible. And what is the way of forgiveness? What is Christian forgiveness? Christian forgiveness is the renunciation of the cycle of revenge. That is what Christian forgiveness has at its core. It's I don't want to battle from beginning to end. I don't want a cycle, of re, a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. And that's why Te Fiti and Tohu are heroes. Because there's this temptation in all of us to just want to retaliate and to have revenge for the pain that's been caused to our hearts. But the way of Jesus says, no, we love and we bless. And that is the way the world is healed. And that's why these texts were the most quoted biblical texts prior to Constantine. I pray that we never attested like some of these stories. I pray we're never tested like this. But the simple reality of history is that the church is tested. It's been tested in the last hundred years in the United States. Uh, this, the party hack is only 150 years ago or so, 1881, uh, is when this all went down. So we need to be formed in this. We need to have wrestled with this. This is the radical way of Jesus. And my heart's desire for us at Bay Vineyard is that we would be a, a forgiven community of forgiven sinners who are passionate about healing and reconciliation in our land. 
Because even in our history, with the sort of land acts that have, have taken place and, and all the confiscation of land and all the subsequent economic and pain uh, and, and the, the structure and fabric of our Māori community that's been torn apart throughout our history, well, there's a, there's a ways to go. And the Pākehā thing of saying, just get, get, get over it, folks, this is just the way it is now, is not helpful, and that is not the Christian response. We are going to look at our history. But my prayer and my hope is that we could be together, unified in one, under Jesus, because we forgive one another, and we find healing in that place of going. And this is, a, I think, a bigger challenge, for, well, it's a way bigger challenge for Māori than it is for Bākehā. Bākehā, we've got to humble ourselves and learn a bit of our history. For Māori, they've got to, they know that history. Their whakapapa goes back into all of the land wars and all of that stuff, and there's so much pain. And so the bigger mountain for them to climb is to follow the way of Tefiti and to be able to extend forgiveness to us Pākehā and to say, um, we're going to walk together in unity and we're going to be reconciled, but we are not going to forget because there's too much at stake. We are going to move forward. Martin Luther King, I come into land with this, is preaching in Montgomery, Alabama in 1957. He's preaching to his church of African Americans who are suffering under racism and the Ku Klux Klan and the bombings of, uh, and Jim Crow terrors and all that stuff. And I can almost hear uh, the words of Tefiti. I feel like, like again, Tefiti was well before Martin Luther King Jr. Like he's... But it's like I can, I, I, as I read this quote and sat with it this week, I could hear Tefiti's voice ringing out from that par on Parihaka. Listen to this. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour to beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall also so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That's exactly what happened at Parihaka. Because now Pākehā is standing up and saying, we got it wrong. <laughs> that was a dumb idea. That greed and that land grabbing and that arrogance and all of that stuff there's a double victory now because Pākehā are going, oh boy, Tefiti's a hero. <laughs> Tohu's a hero. This is what happens when you follow the radical way of Jesus. It's the way of love. And so as we come into land this morning, I just ask once more this question. Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to forgive? Can you allow this radical message of Jesus to form your worldview and approach to life? And sometimes, you know, as I've been preparing this sermon, sometimes the biggest challenge is to forgive ourselves. There's a bit of Carl Seidel in all of us, just a little bit, real little, hopefully. But there's, you know, things we've done that we look back on our history and we're like, man, I'm ashamed about what I did there. I'm deeply, deeply ashamed. And you need to know that you can be forgiven. That you can be forgiven. That's not a cheap forgiveness. It costs God the life of his son. But he did not consider his son too dear a price, but gave himself up for us because he loves you so much that he wanted you this morning to be free. Mm. 
The Bible says that Jesus saw the joy set before him and endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? A free and forgiven people. Get your heads around that. The joy set before him meant he endured the cross. I want to give God joy this morning by saying, I want to receive your forgiveness for the things I've done. And I want to allow your blood, which we, we celebrated in communion, that was shed for us to wash away my sins so that I could be pure again. And his body that was broken so that I could be whole. And so it's a, uh, there's a long journey that we've got to take in our country. But it begins with, with people believing that this is at the core of what the Christian message is about. It's a gospel of forgiveness. It's good news. We can be forgiven. We can be free. And because we have been forgiven, we can extend that mercy and forgiveness to others and follow that radical way of Jesus and start getting some double victories as we appeal to people's consciences and people's hearts as we follow this radical way of love. It's the only thing that's going to heal our world. Let's stand together and pray. Well, once more, Lord, we're in deep water. <laughs> like every Sunday we open the Bible and we look at your words and it's deep because it goes to the very root of our identity and uh, our understanding of who we are. <clears throat> once more, I thank you, Lord God, that you are the God of infinite love and you promise that when we gather in your name, you're present amongst us. And so we acknowledge that we, we sense your presence here, Father your loving presence that doesn't want to make people feel stink. It wants to lead people to life. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be formed as people, radical people of forgiveness, people who follow the example of Tefiti and Tohu, who follow the example of the Martin Luther Kings, who capture something of the heart of what Brian Zand has captured, that we are a forgiven community of sinners who just rejoice in the fact that we're forgiven because of Jesus' love for us and sacrifice on that cross. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask this morning that by your Spirit, you'll just come. And if there are things that have happened in our life by others who have, where it's deeply, deeply hurt us, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk towards that place of forgiveness and perhaps even forgive them this morning. But that you'll just help us, Lord God, to come to that place of forgiveness, of uh, extending the same mercy that we've received from you and extending that to other people that we could follow your way of love. And we acknowledge this morning that's difficult, but the alternative is hearts filled with violence. And Lord, we do not want to live that way. And so it's costly, but Lord, we, we choose to follow your way this morning, the way of forgiveness, the way of love. And particularly for our Maori brothers and sisters here this morning who have engaged with the story of this land and who have been grieved and who have seen the effects on their whanau and who heard the stories from their grandparents. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would um, continue to give them grace to walk this journey that we have together of healing and reconciliation. And, uh, and Lord, we don't want to forget some of those. We're never going to forget some of those things. It's not right to. But Lord, we want to move past that place of anger and violence to places of healing and hope and forgiveness and mercy. And so by your Spirit, lead us, Father, into places of hope and healing. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your gentle and beautiful presence here and just ask, Lord God, that we would know something of um, your way through all the different challenges that life may throw of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.